Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. Centre for Mental Health is an independent charity challenging policies, systems and society so that everyone can have better mental health. I'm Thea Joshi and in each episode I speak to people with experience of mental health difficulties, someone working in a specific area or a member of our team about mental health and social justice. And this month I sat down with Andrew K. Kaufman, our current writer in residence, to talk a little bit more about obsessive compulsive disorder. So OCD is something that Andrew and I have both experienced, so it was both enlightening and encouraging to speak about our experiences and what policy and services can do to better help people living with this diagnosis. And before we get started, I have a really quick favour to ask you. It would help us massively as a charity podcast if you could rate us with five stars on whatever platform you're using. This couldn't be simpler. On our Spotify podcast page, you hit three dots and then rate show. On our Apple podcast page, you just tap the five stars. It'll take you two seconds, but would help us a lot. Thanks and enjoy the show. So I'm delighted to be here with Andrew today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Thea. Yeah, really good to be here. Thank you. Oh, I, I've been wanting to have this conversation for ages. Uh, obviously, you're our current writer in residence and you've been doing really interesting pieces on a whole host of topics. One just coming out now about male mental health and and you've covered so much interesting stuff. Um, but, a, a, you know, a recent piece that you did was on your own experience of OCD and the impact of living with OCD. And that's a lived experience I also have. So I was like, oh, we have to talk about this. I'd love to do an episode on this. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It's, it's one of those topics where one talks about one's own mental uh, health, one's own mental health condition, if one has one, uh, that can feel a little bit daunting because you think, okay, I'm more comfortable maybe talking about mental health in general as if it's some sort of issue that affects other people oh, yeah. out there yeah, yeah. that I can comment <laughs> on. But oh no, it does affect me and it affects many of us. And um, and it's in that spirit that I'm here to talk about it because I think a, a big inspiration for me in being writer in residence has been how to try and confront taboos try and um, destigmatize some of the issues around mental health yeah thank you so much and I think for us at the center as well it's that that piece of always having lived experience at the heart of what we're doing driving what we're doing and and the experiences of people with mental health difficulties um driving forward the conversation about what next what what's still needed what's missing um and yeah having that conversation in tandem um and I know from from having my own experiences about not being done to but being you know things being co-produced solutions being co-produced and that's really important to us as well um so it's lovely just to kind of talk a little bit more about you know how it literally feels to live with something like this as part of our work so I wanted to kick us off I I still feel that OCD is is really quite misunderstood a lot of the time and there's a lot of kind of weird stereotypes and misconceptions um so I I wanted to ask you know how you how how would you explain it or how how do you explain it if, if people say oh what's that about then I have to think in two ways about this question because there's my own quite sort of individual take um because I think everyone that has OCD will have their own kind of history, their own story, uh, their own kind of very specific experiences in describing OCD. And then that leaves us with room to also reflect on, okay, what is OCD generally? You know, how do we hear about it in terms of how it affects other people? Um, maybe I'll begin with the, the latter. Uh, what do I know of OCD, I guess, is one possible way of looking at it. I'd be keen to get your view as well. <laughs> um, and we're having that conversation, aren't we, both of us living with OCD. But I 
understand that it can take different forms. And I think that's really important to share with anyone who's looking for information on OCD. It's not just one thing. So a popular kind of conception of OCD is that um, people will um, perhaps have particular repetitive, obsessive or intrusive thoughts or images, which can be very anxiety inducing, very unwelcome, sometimes quite sudden. They're not necessarily images or thoughts in any way that you can just say, oh, I don't want that, I'm going to move on. The very threat, if you like, of these obsessive images or intrusive thoughts or impulses even is that they recur very incessantly at times and no matter what you may seek to do in seeking to kind of lessen or eliminate them the more attention you try and give them in saying oh no I don't want to think this and it can make them even more uh, present and more and more uh, stressful but for a number of people OCD what can also occur is and I'm no clinician, it's just my sort of anecdotal understanding of how OCD can affect other people, that they can also um, have, yes, the obsessive thoughts and images and impulses, but also compulsive behaviour, which by uh, some people it's described as kind of ritualised um, behaviours mm -hmm. that um, are commonly understood to be ways of attempting to reduce or or in some way kind of lessen the, the, the obsession thoughts or image so for example if one has an obsessive thought or image about something and this is the stereotype right that we often hear about OCD if someone has an obsessive thought or image related to hygiene um then commonly um it's assumed okay well someone might then seek to address that in that instant by compulsively cleaning or doing something that seeks to make them feel more um secure comfortable with that hygiene in some way and you create this kind of this uh, circular set of kind of cause and effect sort of responses in whereby you have the image that causes distress or oh, gosh, something's wrong. Um, I can't stop what I'm thinking is wrong. And then you have the compulsive behavior or the ritualized behavior, which doesn't unfortunately eliminate the worry or the obsessive thought. If anything, it just gives even greater attention, unfortunately, over the long run to that thought or image. So typically, and this is what some people with OCD do have, and it's not just a stereotype, um, it might be um, someone feels that, yes, indeed, the surfaces in their kitchen, for example, are extremely um, unclean, and um, they need to repeatedly clean those surfaces, but not in a way that might be usual for day-to-day uh, -day cleaning purposes, but in a way that is so preoccupying that it can almost become disabling, where they're not able to give attention to other things, uh, where it actually just, if anything, intensifies their worry or sense of guilt or other feelings that there's a lack of hygiene and a lack of discomfort in relation to their kitchen services. Now, that's a very oversimplified and, and generalised take, but I'm very happy to expand a little bit into saying a little bit about my own experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some people, however, and, and this is true of me, um, have a quite particular form of OCD that may be understood even less well, which is that they may have a series of obsessive thoughts and images in their mind that again appear almost as if from nowhere, unwelcome. They're not thoughts that we wish to have, but they're not linked in any obvious way to a compulsive act 
to try and do something, as it were, to wash our hands, to uh, to take action in order to try and address that obsessive thought and image. The form of OCD I have is very much about the images and thoughts themselves recurring and not having necessarily anything attached to that in terms of compulsive or ritualized behavior. And that has been in some places I've seen described to or referred to as pure OCD, but I know that can be problematic for some because it um, has certain connotations around what's considered one form of OCD and is one form more in need of response than another. I think all forms of OCD, the point I would make, are equally very at risk of making the individuals affected, very stressed, very anxious, feel sometimes a sense of being trapped, a loss of autonomy and independence around feeling like I can't change this situation. And I've got so much to say on the subject, particularly including how it first manifested or appeared as a condition for me and, and the first symptoms. But um, I would just conclude on this point that um, it possibly affects more people than is understood. And what it's not is just the routine worries that may occasionally pop up for any of us in day-to-day -day life. So we may all indeed have a worry occasionally that our house isn't clean enough. <laughs> we live busy lives. Of course, we all probably don't feel we're cleaning our house enough. But for a number of people who may not have OCD, they can think that thought, oh gosh, you know, I need to keep my kitchen cleaner and I'll do something about it. But then they'll take the action and then they're not giving the moments or thought to the germs, maybe the bacteria that possibly are growing on their kitchen surface. For someone with OCD, distinctively, the vividness, the kind of physical bodily reaction they can have to this fear or this anxiety that there's, in that case, a lack of hygiene in their surroundings, is so all-consuming that just getting out some cleaning products is not um, the issue. It's much deeper and more sustained than that, which is they cannot stop feeling that there's a problem around cleanliness. Yeah, and I was just going to add in there, I think it's really interesting because a lot of the kind of unhelpful stereotypes around OCD and cleaning, I, again, I'm not a clinician, you know, full disclaimer, we're just people speaking about <laughs> our own experiences. But my understanding is that it's often not just um, things aren't clean, it's if things aren't clean, X, X will happen. And we're mm. talking about very, very severe consequences. If something isn't clean, what if I get ill? What if I pass on to people I love? What if they die? You know, the, we're talking about very extreme nightmarish yeah. fears here. And so if you need to clean a bit harder, then you kind of think, well, that's a price worth paying to make sure my family are safe or to make sure we don't get yeah. sick, make sure we don't, you know, so the stakes are really high, right? Absolutely. I think one word that's often used these days, it wasn't a few years back, but I hear it more and more is catastrophizing. And what does yeah. that mean? Um, I'm not sure I've got a dictionary definition for it. And <laughs> um, I'm sometimes even, bless him, but referred to by my partner as someone who catastrophizes a bit. It's done in humor and it's not in any way meant to shame me, but I can think of one thing and then it leads to 10 other possible consequences in a way that to others can seem really exaggerated and almost like um, we're resorting to sort of kind of hyperbole in a way and saying, oh, X may happen or Y may happen. But for me, um, absolutely what you've just described is so fitting because certainly when I was a child, for example, I used to often think I would need to carry out certain behaviours, I guess, in order to keep my family safe. And I had no idea at the time where this stemmed from. I had no idea at the time that it was unusual even. I would have to walk on alternate paving stones 
in the three weeks before we were taking a flight for our summer holiday, truly convinced that if I didn't, that our plane could crash. Yeah. I didn't voice that to anyone. I didn't read about that as a thing I needed to do from anywhere. There was no trigger as such that said, oh, Andrew, for you to make your family feel safe, this is what you need to do. It just had emerged. And I would need to pray a certain way. I would need to have certain rituals before bedtime, uh, tapping the toilet flush three times. It's so seemingly different, perhaps, to how people perceive OCD. I think that's the thing. There's a complexity to OCD that really needs setting out because I think there are certain, as you say, perceptions that built up. I remember David Beckham famously once said he had OCD. And again, I'm not a clinician and it's not for me to say David Beckham does or doesn't have OCD. That would be totally wrong. But I think the reaction to that was quite interesting when he said uh, he had OCD because a number of people were like, oh gosh, everyone has OCD these days. You know, what's the problem? Of course he does. You know, who doesn't sort of have OCD? It's the, almost the kind of cultural commentary around uh, David Beckham saying that at the time and I think it can as I said actually in the essay for the writing residency it can cheapen and trivialize and lessen people's sense of what the gravity is of what's going on for themselves when they have OCD in the extreme form they do when it is an actual mental health condition as opposed to hey I just like to keep my house a bit clean yeah, totally. And I think the reason it just really dry, it gets my back up when kind of people trivialise it, it's not, you know, I want people to know that it's not because like people with OCD just like don't have a sense of humour or are, like very hoity and very like, mm -hmm. you know, grumpy. It's, it's not that. It's that A, you know, OCD literally makes people housebound. It drives people to consider taking their own lives like this is not something to be trivialized but also because we know that when it's trivialized and misunderstood and that's perpetuated people don't actually know what OCD is and therefore as you've said in your piece wait years years and years like like a decade at least for treatment because they don't realize that what's going on is OCD and I've heard so many people over the years say I just didn't know what was going on like you say I didn't know that this was you know uh, a symptomatic of of something that was you know class as a disorder I just thought I was doing something to kind of keep my family safe and people don't realize and that's why kind of talking about it still feels super important because there's so much misinformation I, I, I couldn't agree more I mean for me um if it's okay I might say a little bit about when it first emerged and in what circumstances because I think that may be reasonably illustrative of not only what OCD is, not just for me, but for other people, perhaps, but also the circumstances in which it can emerge and some of the silence and shame that surrounds that. I was 19, say, um, more than 20 years ago now, amazingly. And I had I just lost my mum, unfortunately, to a terminal illness. I had just started university and I'd just come out as gay. <laughs> So there are a number of quite big things going on in my life, quite big changes. And it's sometimes said that quite significant um, adverse events in one life can be an influence on at least the timing that OCD begins. It might not be the only reason why OCD might appear in someone's life, but it can have a set of effects in sort of bringing on OCD maybe sooner or kind of making it more prevalent. But I didn't know what OCD was. I'm not even sure I'd necessarily even heard of the term at the time. If I had, it didn't sort of mean anything to me. So for, genuinely from one day to the next, um, and this was in the very odd month anyway of September 2001 when the Twin Towers were attacked. Yeah. Um, I 
started experiencing what I can only describe as frightening and obscene images uh, that related to my own family, in fact. And I was on holiday with them, of all things, and I didn't want to, of course, talk to them because I didn't know what it was I was even experiencing. I didn't have a language to put to it. I just wanted to hide in my room, essentially. I didn't want to see them. But I sort of carried out the basic things anyone's meant to do when you're on holiday with your family, where you're meant to, quote-unquote, be enjoying yourself, would join them at breakfast and so on. But I was having these repeat waking thoughts that just would not go. And the more I would say, I must stop thinking these things, it's a little bit like saying to someone, you must stop thinking of a black cat you know, what do you end up thinking about? The black cat. There are just black cats everywhere now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I couldn't comprehend what was going on. And I I certainly wasn't in a space where I was saying, oh, I need to speak to a psychologist or I need to call a best friend or I need to read a book about this. Like that was quite a number of months, if not years away. Um, I, I was totally and utterly frozen. Um, it's the best way I could describe it. I, I wanted to shake these things off as if it was a rash that had formed on my body. I wanted to get rid. And the more I had that thought reaction, that instinctive reaction, I want this to stop, the more these obscene images recurred and recurred and recurred. And I felt trapped. And that's the best way I could describe it. And in lacking any real knowledge or awareness of anyone else that had the condition, certainly anyone famous, anyone that was a role model who had handled living with the condition, in lacking any sense that this was something that you could talk to a friend about so that you could kind of lessen, if you like, a little bit of shame you felt in response to the onset of the condition. It was, for me, and I know for lots and lots of other people that start to experience the symptoms, basically extremely isolating because you kind of want to sleep a lot you kind of that's where you get the salvation from oh, not 100%, having yeah. these things yeah like yeah. is that something oh that yeah you as in, yeah yeah you get to a stage where it's like only when you're sleeping are you at rest right yeah. because otherwise your brain is just constantly like just pushing out horrible thoughts just to freak you out totally and and then you might get to the stage where you think okay maybe i need to talk to someone but you can't really feel very confident about what that involves because you're not even quite sure what you're going to be sharing you certainly don't want to share the thoughts or the images um and whilst i'm not prepared to talk about what those images were at the time because they still to me remain unwanted and obscene i should also add the caveat um where people sometimes kind of get a bit confused if they don't have ocd and they're hearing about the condition i think it's really important to underline for a long time you can have these images and they think they truly are a reflection on what you think about yourself or other people or this must mean something about me exactly yeah and i think that can compound the sense of doubt and shame so for example as a gay man i don't want to in any way kind of say that i was told to feel this but i grew up in a culture in an era the 80s with section 28 which prohibited schools and other public authorities at the time from talking about homosexuality i grew up in an environment and you know the uk is by no means the worst environment to grow up gay compared to other places in the world but i grew up in an environment where it felt somewhat shaming to be coming out as gay and there were also some sensationalist or really uh, pernicious sort of stories at the time that also to be gay was to be a paedophile. 
and I can't say that narrative has altogether gone away over the years. And um, the thing for me uh, sometimes was, oh my gosh, I'm gay. I'm pretty ashamed of that. I hadn't yet come out. I just that I also mean I'm a people. And also, does it mean I'm going to get HIV AIDS? And also, does it mean yeah. X? And also, does it mean Y? And it never stops. And, and so the problem is, it's not just the original thought or image you have. Oh, I might be X. It's your conviction. My goodness, this must be true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, and the, and the, and the complete fear and dread that comes with that because it's it's like it's not just having an, an intrusive thought in OCD. It's not just about a thought happening here, and you can look at it kind of in a mindful way and go like, "Oh, that's yeah. a thought I'm having." It's like this is me, right? Yeah. Like this is and and so this what I'm thinking is a reflection on me. This is who I am. I'm awful, you know. As you say, extrapolate that out times a million, and it's terrifying. Yeah. It's like your identity is suddenly totally under question, but qu- under question by yourself. Yes. Yeah, no one like... else is out there saying that, Andrew or whoever, like, you know, you are this person. You're doing it to yourself. You're turning a mirror on yourself and you're saying, I am awful because yeah. I have this thought. And this thought is so prevalent and it's recurring so much. It must be true. I um, won't say too much because it's unfair to the individual, uh, but when I started at university, which is, of course, another time where there's a lot of change in people's lives and mental health can deteriorate um, uh, if people don't feel supported. And I met someone, funnily enough, this was the year before I got OCD, so who knows what the links were there, but who I got talking to, and unfortunately they had been in a very, um, they had been a victim in a very violent incident where soon after they started feeling that in that attack where they've been attacked by a knife that they were contaminated and their obsessive thoughts or images was that they had HIV AIDS and D and and no matter what what he did to try and keep on saying okay well that possibly isn't true the far stronger counter threat in his mind was no it must be true I must have this you know and and you'd seek out proof and this was true of me too. That's the other thing. These alter your behaviours potentially. They can alter your like your satisfaction and well-being in life generally because you kind of keep on seeking out evidence that something either is true to confirm it or not. So I think a few comments that you made earlier are so pertinent here, which is this isn't just incidental. This is integral to how you experience your day-to-day well-being and life because it, it has consequences that are just so dramatic in terms of how you feel about yourself, your self-identity, your self-image, and the steps you might then take to kind of just try and extract some sense of being okay from it all. Say. So, This is kind of classic, really, and I should have seen it coming. As someone who has always been a bit ashamed of, yes, my sexual orientation, I've worked on that, and I'm proud and openly gay man, but there are moments where I've got some legacy of internalised homophobia from growing up, as I say, in the 80s, and feeling to be gay was shameful somehow. When a new scare story occurs around, like, one's health, and oh, to be a gay man is to have a certain health condition or set of symptoms, that can really get me. And it can really trigger my OCD and take it into a new phase. So for example, where are we? We're 2023 now. In 2022, there's a new epidemic that a lot of people have heard about at the time. At the beginning, what was referred to as monkeypox. 
And then the WHA rightly changed the name to MPOX because monkeypox itself was seen as quite stigmatizing as a name. And all I was all over that news story. And I was in a relationship, I'm in a relationship. Um, this was primarily um, affecting uh, men who have sex with men. And I didn't know how to react other than to keep on seeking out health information stories about it and rather than just go okay this probably isn't actually directly relevant to me because i'm in a relationship and so you know let's think about that there aren't probably going to be consequences for me far from it i kind of just kept on thinking oh i'm destined to get this i'm destined to get this and say i would see like little pustules or uh, blackheads or little moles which might just occur like on any of us in any week that are so tiny that like they're not visible to anyone other than if you take a I don't know a magnifying glass to them but I I'm not making light of it I, there was a little bit of jollity in my voice that generally at the time I would shut myself in the bathroom away from my partner and like really with my uh, zoom function on my smartphone like try and take clear images to see if these little new spots that might occur from time to time on the surface of your skin were evidence of the mpox virus and they weren't but i couldn't ever satisfy myself it's like every night or every weekend i had to do that and i had to like repeatedly check like the nhs website repeatedly check other websites from the us and then you can get into a bit of a vortex of forever checking health information, which doesn't alleviate your concerns, but just, if anything, can make them even more intense. Um, oh, there's this number of transmissions this week in London. Okay, yes, the threat is even greater to me. Oh, there's this number of transmissions this week. And so you kind of go in this repeated circle of seeing the threat, but not seeing yourself being able to be removed from that threat. Yeah. Totally. And I think what you've exemplified there is, is, you know, that's one example of OCD and how it can manifest, right? But actually, that's the same cycle that you see with anything else is threat, you know, it, kind of that trigger threat, something is wrong, I need to protect myself, I need to do something to deal with this level of anxiety and panic and distress. Okay, what actually is a rational thing to do? Well, yeah. you know, for someone who was worried about they might have monkeypox, checking their skin a little bit, you can kind of think, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense that's how you know we're told to check our skin we're told to check for certain health things that mm. makes sense but then it goes to the extreme as you're talking about of just like obsessively checking and checking and checking and checking not realizing that that compulsion that checking is literally feeding the fear it's feeding the problem it's feeding the the thoughts and the sense yeah. of threat and the sense that this is a real threat that i must need to take really seriously and I think something you, you mentioned, you talked earlier about you explaining compulsions. I think something that I wanted to just explain to people is maybe this is obvious, but the fact that the compulsions do actually normally give a little bit of relief to begin with. Mm. And I, I'm, yeah, I don't know if that's always, always the experience, but there's a sense that I have to do this thing, but also because I do tend to get a bit of relief afterwards, you know, and the fact is that that sense of relief, that sense of clarity that you get for a moment even it might only be a second yeah. but it then fuels that pattern because then you think oh this is what I have to do to feel sure again and actually as you said all it does is feed fuel more doubt and uncertainty so you have to keep checking so it's a really horrible vicious cycle 
and and we're having this conversation strikingly three years, four years into the pandemic. And I think, again, I'm no clinician, but there has been perhaps in researching the piece I've done on OCD, some suggestion that OCD, in common with other mental health diagnoses, possibly has, the incidence of those diagnoses possibly has gone up. Um, we need to you know, see longitudinally over time whether that is borne out by data. But um, nevertheless, I think anecdotally, living in a situation like a pandemic, global pandemic, can again be a trigger for people um, because um, we're all told rightly to be more vigilant, to, you know, wash our hands, to do all sorts of things that are just, of course, in our general interest in the midst of a new um, health uh, threat, an objective health threat like COVID, the coronavirus, and yet um, for someone with OCD, uh, the difficulty is, okay, well, how to maintain the tasks which the government and the National Health Service and others say are the right things to do, but to kind of just then almost keep a wall or a barrier between knowing that there are certain things you can do and they're probably kind of good precautionary things to do, like to wash your hands regularly, how to keep a barrier between those things and then not letting it kind of become so consuming that it really becomes disabling. And I, I don't have enough evidence of what's happened to people during the pandemic, but it feels to me at times like we need to be a little bit careful about how we talk about new health threats generally. That's not to say that the NHS shouldn't have talked about the health threat of the coronavirus. Of course, they needed to on a population level. But there are added things that I think health services maybe need to think through about how to communicate some of these things. Recognising the way they're communicated is just as important as the decision to communicate a new threat. Because if you communicate them in a certain way, um, factually, proportionally, that might be okay. But if you kind of, or if certain media commentators or others kind of seem to go the extra mile, or oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, you know, that can further amplify and, and frighten people, including those with OCD. Yeah, definitely. And and as, as you were talking about this fear of AIDS, like I know that's actually quite a common theme with OCD is this fear of, of, um, of yeah, contracting AIDS. And mm. I think, and I, I'm, it's not just because of this, but people have noted that, you know, I think, I think it was in the eighties, there were all of these kind of public health uh, videos yeah. and warnings that were really, really dark and stark. And you just kind of think, oh, okay, that, that sort of makes sense, you know, um, that people then started to worry about it so much because they were being told like this is a threat to you um, and again as you say that you know it's really important that we have messaging about any health risks but again just being mindful of the way that can can affect people in different ways and, and cause it's, other health issues. <laughs> it's such a huge legacy those famous ads in the 80s don't die of ignorance had and again I'm not questioning the intention to run a public health campaign at the time to encourage all sorts of certain kind of uh, responses to the HIV AIDS epidemic at the time in the 80s 90s but those adverts that some may not recall but you can uh, imagine them as I described them they were adverts that were broadcast quite frequently on television bus stops and elsewhere of tombstones falling yeah. and carved into those tombstones where sort of this in, uh, statement don't die of ignorance with this sort of very haunting voice by the actor John Hurt and um, that's actually those adverts genuinely are imprinted on the consciousness of a whole generation or two of 
LGBT plus and other communities who almost, yes, absorbed the message, but absorbed it at times too much in terms of the, a cost to their mental health. And um, I wanted to say, obviously, we've been talking about lots of different types of OCD, but kind of I think in the in the spirit of, of understanding and, and wanting people to kind of wanting people to grasp the breadth of it. I just want to mention very quickly a couple of examples of the kind of mm. things that people can worry about or have have intrusive thoughts, have OCD around. Um, so we sort of talked about various different kinds of themes, but there's lots of stuff around, you know, health, health OCD, like we've been talking about, AIDS, AIDS, MPOX. Um, you know, just generally getting sick, other people getting sick. We've talked about kind of contamination, whether that's cleanliness, your hands, or yeah, as you talked about that example of, you know, um, there's lots of different kinds of contamination OCD, which I'm sort of getting my head around. Um, yeah, lots of moral stuff. So moral mm. scrupulosity, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? I've had fears about, you know, stealing or cheating in some way, something that, you know, would confirm I am a bad person, Mm. I don't deserve to be happy, etc, etc. You know, that can, as you say, you can lead to compulsions around praying. Oh, there's so many. And and yeah, uh, fears around even they can be like religious OCD. So fears around kind of blasphemy or saying something shocking or, you Mm. know, to do with spiritual identity. And yeah, fears around like, what if I'm a paedophile? What if I do this awful thing? You know, what if I push someone in front of a chain? That's something that you talked about in your piece. You know, these kind of, um, I, I kind of want to say they're bizarre in that, like, I know that they're horrendous because I've experienced them. But like, for, I know to, to the outside listener who doesn't have experience with OCD, they can sound like, okay, well, just don't worry about that. It's like, yeah, if yeah. only it were that easy, right? But yeah, it's just, as you can hear from the kind of descriptions I've given, they are very, very distressing. And so I think that's a really key thing to remember when you're trying to understand or empathise with someone dealing with OCD is that, you know, it's being caused by and driven by a huge amount of distress and needs to be seen like that. Yeah, I think that's the thing, that refrain, why don't you just get over it? Like, uh, is sometimes common. Thank I you. remember. Why haven't I thought of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember I went to GP um, in the mid 2000s and I can only hope this was a random example and not representative of what happens in general practice elsewhere but you know I think it was a new GP I've maybe just moved to a new area I wanted there to be some continuity in terms of the prescription I had at the time and because for um, 20 years now in terms of uh, antidepressants what I take is uh, fluoxetine hydrochloride I always prefer calling it fluoxetine hydrochloride because the commercial name has certain reputation the commercial name is Prozac uh, which a lot of people do know uh, a lot of people don't know the name fluoxetine hydrochloride and it makes me feel better to say that that's what I take anyway at the time I wanted there to be like continuity care so I saw this new GP and I was saying look you know it's really important to me that I take these um would you be able to um, prescribe me again and maybe like my historic GP notes were available to this person but instead of like kind of trying to engage with what I've said all I was faced with was what are you so obsessed about genuinely in that tone as if I was being lectured by a parent or an angry school teacher or something and I just thought oh okay well that's just great isn't it I mean not only do they not seem to have any awareness of the condition but they just don't remotely seem keen to even be empathetic I hope that's rare and all too uncommon but I don't know and I definitely have heard other people say there could be ignorance it's not that people are always kind of faced with attitudes that are genuinely like uh, malicious, but there can be a lack of, 
understanding of ACT and that can sometimes still show up in in health services too. Yeah and I think as well you know I've heard of people initially being diagnosed with anxiety because you know maybe they the practitioner hasn't heard about different forms of OCD which I guess is partly why I mention it because OCD can can show up in really any type of thought but I think sometimes if it doesn't present in those kind of ways that um, we've maybe seen talked about more or sometimes unhelpfully stereotyped then sometimes people don't know what to do and as you say as well there's a lot of shame around talking about it. it it's it's deeply shameful and hard sometimes to kind of uh express what's going on in our minds which again can form another barrier to to getting help yeah it, it's I remember really feeling like one. I was wasting doctors time like yeah that they felt oh gosh I've only got seven minutes with the patient yes but seven yeah. minutes isn't going to be enough for them yeah and I'd rather see Mrs. Jones, who's coming afterwards, because I know she's got Parkinson's, and that's something I can talk about. I mean, I'm slightly kind of, um, you know, over dramatising this, but but not really. Like, yeah. I would genuinely feel like every time I would see a GP, I was wasting their time. Not because I didn't feel like my condition was serious, but because I didn't feel they were going to take it seriously, mm. or as seriously as I wanted them to. And then I was really relieved when I was heard, okay, well, we know that for long enough you've been helped by taking antidepressants so we will re-prescribe them trusting that you know how to manage your treatment for yourself and we maybe only need to do like twice yearly kind of medicine reviews so that that was an important shift for me that there was that kind of trust but I have to say some of my best experiences in seeking care at the same time were quite close to some of my worst and what I mean by that is, and I feel really in some ways bad even mentioning it because the individual was genuinely so helped me. But I, I saw a, um, eventually, about a year or two after first developing the symptoms of ACD, I saw a psychotherapist who genuinely was so helpful to me on so many levels. But I think over time, maybe I started turning to a bit later appointments, maybe kind of ran out of rage, maybe our kind of, the, the things we were ever going to deal with satisfactorily in that kind of space where uh, they were my psychotherapist and I was the patient. Maybe we're like got to the end of the relationship a bit. But anyway, there was one point where I was experiencing ruminations that are around, oh, am I a paedophile? Ruminations, by the way, is the word that I came to use, but for others, it could be like obsessive images or thoughts. And I did share some of this and I thought I was sharing that in good faith. And I did actually receive a letter about a week or two later at my home address just warning me that they they were professionally bound duty bound to just to say to me having shared what I had with them that if I ever did act on my thoughts that they would need to or if I ever said to them that I was going to act on my thoughts they would need to tell the police or any other relevant authorities and for me that was just really challenging because not only have we built up a bond of trust over many years but I thought it was precisely what would most have come across as my message to them over all those years which is that's the point I'm not gonna act on these thoughts and I thought above all other people you knew that yeah and I, I felt sorry for them in a way because I think they were just under some professional obligation to send me that letter I don't I, know yeah I, and I, I don't I don't know either and obviously safeguarding is of the highest importance but for me it's apart from being incredibly damaging to receive something like that when you're explaining that these are um ego dystonic thoughts which I'll you know 
it's funny and I'm not just trying to band you around jargon um <laughs> but you know it's super super difficult and presumably triggering to receive something like that when that's literally what you are worrying about but mm. for me it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what OCD is right that this is about fears of things that we think are awful and that's what I mean by this phrase ego dystonic which I'm probably absolutely butchering so sorry for any psychologists <laughs> my understanding as a layman is you know that it's about it, it's it's the opposite of what we think is good and right and want to do it's completely not in keeping and it's actually in mm. conflict with mm. our own value system and our beliefs and our view of the world right and that's what people say about OCD is that you only worry about things that you think are awful mm. if you um I don't I've never had an obsessive thought or fear about something lovely happening to me you know I've never because why would you right because there's no threat there that's just a nice thing the point is that we are being tortured I would even say or torturing ourselves sometimes with these very scary distressing thoughts right which go completely against what we want or feel or believe and that's why they're so distressing so to receive a letter like that when you've been saying this is really distressing me because it goes completely against everything I believe in and think is right it's kind of to me I'm like well, that's just totally missing the point isn't it and it's a yeah. it's a fundamental misunderstanding and it brought that relationship to an end pretty much within weeks I think and I, I don't blame the person I don't even want to disclose their gender because it's unfair because they were of all the psychotherapists I saw over the years the most helpful to me in coming to terms with my mother's death becoming confident and being a gay person but um I think yeah there's a set of kind of constraints I think you have to deal with when you have OCD which is this ultimate worry which is if I talk about this to the wrong person this could lead to other consequences where they think oh I now need to take some legal action or I might need to actually warn this person not to do the thing they're worried about. And and of course that can silence you even more and can shame you even more. Um, some of the things that have helped and they're not going to help everyone. For me, it has been taking antidepressants and I know there's a whole debate about that and I'm not an advocate one way or the other on one side of the debate or the other i know there's commentary which says look antidepressants are just a placebo for some people with ocd and you know my take on that is if that's all it's been for me well it's worked so i'm not gonna i'll take a placebo any day exactly. if it does the job right <laughs> you know i'm not a conspiracy theorist i i read um johan hari's work on big pharma and i think i can't even remember the name of the book with interest and i, I respect stolen focus yeah I think that's it I think I respect the work exactly but there's a big section there on why antidepressants are not pharmacologically what they're described to be uh that there's no real scientific basis for the claims made around helping people with certain mental health conditions I don't know all I can say is they have helped me and if that's that they've lessened my anxiety in relation to the OCD and therefore my obsessive um compulsive disorder has itself felt like it's less intense then so be it I don't want to really interrogate that much one person once described to me in a very effective way as a metaphor think of your OCD as like having a remote control for a television set a very noisy sweary television program say and if you take antidepressants perhaps or if you take other actions whatever they are they might be your means by which you just lower the volume on that sweary television program, television set. So whatever can be your remote control, for me, it was a combination of taking antidepressants and psychotherapy in tandem. Whatever can reduce the volume of that thing from 10, I can't stop hearing this image of thought 
I can't do anything else. It's like being in that room with a sweary TV and, you know, you're absolutely just blindsided by it. How can you increase the volume from 10 to a 3 or a 2 or even to the mute button? So it's in the background. And that's always how I've tried to approach my issues now, which say, I'm not going to cure this. It's not going to go away. It may reemerge at moments in my life, particularly when there's significant amounts of change or stress. I'm more self-aware about what the conditions within it, which it can be worse, but also I'm more self-aware about how I might then manage that or talk to loved ones about the fact that it's popping up for me in a big way again. So I think the remote control metaphor is a really important one to me because it's like, what can I do not to control my OCD in terms of like choosing to have it or not or eliminating it, but to have a completely different paradigm, which is how do I find steps that are appropriate and personal to me to manage it on my terms yeah. um, and to to know that I might be having obsessive images and thoughts but to kind of say oh yes that's right and be present with that up to mm. a point but then not try and eliminate these things not yeah. try and say okay and therefore these things need to stop knowing as I do from their path that that's the surest yeah. path for me to making these things even worse yeah and there's something there isn't there about accepting and I know that I'm not going to go into lots of chat about the different kinds of therapies out there but I know that acceptance and commitment therapy has been found to be helpful by some people because it's that idea of accepting and sitting with the thoughts and not trying to kind of you know suppress them or push them out but just acknowledging them and then kind of recommitting to your own sort of values and and that and I've, again I've probably butchered that explanation um but I think another thing that a lot of people do find helpful and not everyone but a lot of people have tended to find helpful is you know CBT cognitive behavioral mm. therapy and um this idea of exposure and response prevention exposing yourself to the the things that trigger you and then not doing the compulsions which I can testify is really horrible but actually really effective so yeah and I I would say for myself like I've had several rounds of CBT and um, I initially thought that that was a sign that I was kind of broken and that was a failure on my part and I sort of now realize actually no as you say it's just the OCD kind of flares up and it's relapsing and remitting and therefore you might just need to do some of that one-on-one work with uh, a therapist at points but what has been really challenging and I'd say that the support I've got on the NHS has always been really actually I think always really good like very high quality the challenge has always been oh you've had six sessions or you've had 12 sessions and I understand that you know at the center I understand that from a I don't mean at the center but like I understand that from a model in terms of supply and ensuring that everyone gets the support they need but uh, for someone who's been living with like a kind of chronic health issue for many many years and these patterns are very deeply ingrained to kind of get to the end of 12 sessions and then go sorry you've got to go now even if you're not much better was really hard and so many people I know end up resorting to private therapy because either they can't wait you know the four or six months or whatever um or they they can't kind of just fix themselves and get themselves sorted within that time frame and so I'm super grateful for stuff like IAPT, which is now NHS Talking Therapies. It's been amazing. But there's a lot of people there who kind of get to the end of a course of therapy and think, oh, I don't know what to do now. And I'm kind of worried about what's happening to those people if they cannot afford private therapy, which is, you know, it's a lot of money. Um, so, yeah. Totally. I mean, one of the things that I've been aware of in um, engaging with the Centre for Mental Health this year and seeing all your um, research and your work 
to highlight the problems people are having in access to mental health services is how acute, how severe that crisis has become. Um, and I think whomever's in government is going to need to address this. Um, this isn't a party political point. But um, for children, young people in particular, it feels like uh, things are really at a level that they've not been at in living memory in terms of the number of referrals for people young people that need help and, and the lag time, as you say, between people reaching out for help and that not being available. I, I heard um, a Ronan Kemp, who's a radio DJ and broadcaster, I think on Couple of them, um, uh, recently say on a programme called Our Silent Emergency about mental health for the BBC, that, you know, it's all very well us having these mental health awareness campaigns and saying, oh, you know, talk more, reach out, ask for help. And that's great. But then if there isn't help available, he said it, he, he would liken that to saying for people with a physical health condition, oh, tell us about your physical health symptoms. Oh, but by the way, we won't have any cure for you, so don't expect one. So it's almost like there's a different level of expectations on mental health still today around, on the one hand of the equation, saying to people, okay, talk, you know, talk more, that's important in alleviating your mental health, mental ill health concerns. But at the same time, the other half, the equation isn't taken care of, which is actually mm. making genuinely available the services and support people need. I would say for me, one thing, and this might not be particularly common, I don't know, for others, but one thing that has helped me over years is the deep psychotherapeutic work. I don't mean psychoanalysis, so I don't mean like, you know, trying to really understand how I was as a child and how my parents kind of treated me in particular ways or not. I think. What I'm more talking about is trying to come to understand for myself what are the circumstances in which my OCD first appeared and to almost kind of allow myself to have some permission in forgiving that younger version of myself for feeling as guilty as I did then. Or not forgiving, that's not the word, but to kind of alleviate some of that original harm that I did to myself in, yeah. in saying, oh, you know, this is shameful, you shouldn't talk yeah. about this to anyone. Yeah. I feel there's a, a lot of additional work sometimes with OCD in later on, even if you've come to accept it's your mental health condition, to kind of almost go back over a little bit, not everything in your life, I'm not saying that, but kind of just kind of finding some ability to look back at your younger version of yourself and say, mm. you went through tough times, you yeah. know, and to kind of be able to do that act of service of, and being generous to yourself and saying that wasn't okay you know yeah. you're okay now but yeah. you know to find some healing in that yeah and and that kind of reassuring your sort of yeah past self like it's okay you're safe because I think that's a lot of why this stuff comes from isn't it is you're not safe you're not you're you're in under threat and um and I think also kind of reconciling yourself to the losses of OCD which is something I've talked about before and I know lots of people talk about is you know the things that it has robbed you of and that's mm. the same I think with any mental health difficulty um you know I'm not suggesting this is you know specific to specific to OCD but just the the things that sometimes mental health problems can rob us of in terms of experiences or opportunities yeah. um time you know relationships all of those kind of things um totally I was self-sabotaging in relationships around mm -hmm. my 20s for sure mm -hmm. I kind of didn't want to think about it then but I know that OCD played its part mm -hmm. someone new would come into my life and it might be promising but then maybe I would have certain thoughts and images occur again in relation to that person or that relationship. And I don't want to put them through anything. 
Um, and I would not tell them about my OCD, but I'd bring an immediate halt to the prospect of that turning into a proper relationship. And obviously they felt quite understandably hard done by because I didn't really give them a proper explanation of what I was doing and why I was breaking things off. Yeah, and I think, you know, relationship OCD, as it might be termed, again, very prevalent, as far as I know, in terms of different kinds of OCD, very kind of misunderstood. I think as as we kind of, I mean, I literally could just keep talking to you about this forever, but it'd be an awfully long episode. As we kind of draw it to a close, I guess I'm interested, you know, is, is there stuff that you, for anyone who has a family member or a friend or a loved one uh, living with OCD, is there stuff that you'd kind of suggest, you know, what what can they do or, or not do that can help in some way? Absolutely, yeah. And I do recognise it can be very hard for those who are loved ones and friends, relatives to know how to react to respond. I think as with any news that someone that you know is is struggling first thing above all else is just active listening um, not rushing to immediate kind of solutions necessarily feeling even a pressure to find an immediate solution but just to listen to what you're hearing to just kind of demonstrate that there is space for your loved one or your colleague or friend to, to talk and to share because they've probably been holding on to this worry or this problem for a long long time and more than anything, what they might be looking for in that moment is just to have the space to confidently and openly share something yeah. and to feel like they're not going to be shamed or judged in doing mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so. So kind of actively listening. I think absolutely can work with someone with OCD to kind of say, have you thought about um, speaking to your doctor? You know, um, would you like me to maybe even help come to an appointment or whatever it might be? But I think that standing shoulder to shoulder with someone rather than trying to feel you've got a responsibility to fix the person. Mm. Because again, OCD might not be fixed as such. And it's not on you. It can even affect you adversely if you feel like all of a sudden you've got this whole new responsibility to fix someone. I think it's more around just recognising that this is one mental health condition, there are others. How would you respond to any other difficult news if your loved one was experiencing a health problem? you wouldn't necessarily try and fix other health problems they had. You wouldn't see that as in your power. So don't necessarily see it as in your power to fix this. Just see how you can listen, empathise, share care and support. Maybe when it feels appropriate to maybe research one or two practical steps that someone can take. There might be certain books that might be useful, certain conferences you can listen to or podcast together. Educate yourself, maybe, and try and understand OCD a bit better for yourself. But don't feel that it's all on you to understand the condition. It's not. I think all that someone OCD wants is a listening ear and a, a cup of tea, frankly. <laughs> you know, um, we don't necessarily want pity. We're not asking for, you know, a gold star for opening up the fact that we've got OCD. We just want to know we're not on our own. 100%. I think, I think you've, you've said it perfectly. The only thing I'm going to add to that, having said that, is just another thing that can also be helpful um, is peer support groups. Um, I myself have found that super helpful. It's something we've talked about quite a lot at the centre in terms of just generally the power of peer support, the huge, huge value of um, people with the same uh, experiences or different experiences, but some kind of shared commonality coming together to support each other and the the amazing power of that. And I, I've definitely found that there are lots of uh, support groups out there. And, and as you say, lots of resources, which I can uh, add a few links into the show notes about that. 
But yeah, I just want to say thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for what you've shared today. I know this is sharing this comes at a cost. I, I get that. And obviously, thank you so much for the work you're doing as a writer in residence. We will, of course, link uh, to your piece on OCD as well as your other pieces. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I really hope you found this helpful. And we've included some links to support for OCD in the show notes. Centre for Mental Health is an independent charity, which means we are relying on donations to keep our work going. So if you appreciate this podcast, would you consider making a donation, however big or small? Just go to centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.